Hi, I'm Wilson Gall. And I'm Ellie Roark. This is the Fledgling Theories podcast. Each month we pick a recent uh, study about birds and talk about it. You can find us on Twitter at Fledgecast, and um, you can find the full article for this week on our website at fledglingtheories.podbean.com. So the article we're looking at this week is called Brood Parasitism, Relatedness, and Sociality, A Kinship Role in Female Reproductive Tactics. This is by Malta Anderson, Maddie Oland, and Peter Waldeck, uh, published in Biological Reviews, 2019. So this is the second part of sort of a two-part mini-series we're doing on brood parasitism, which is when a bird lays an egg in the nest of another bird. Yeah, so last time we talked about uh, cuckoos, which are, are brood parasite obligates, so they always lay their eggs in the nest of uh, another bird who's not a cuckoo. And um, we were talking about drivers for the egg color of the the egg that cuckoos lay in other nests. And it turns out that uh, it was not the discriminating hosts causing cuckoos to lay a cryptic egg. It was actually uh, other cuckoos that were seeking out and destroying cuckoo eggs. Yeah, that's right. The selection pressure was coming from within their own species rather than from the species that they were parasitizing. Right. So this week's a little different. This one is looking about looking at brood parasitism within a species. So when a bird lays an egg in the nest of another bird from the same species. And specifically what this article uh, is looking at is whether there's a role of kinship selection here. So usually when you think about characteristics evolving in a population, you're thinking for the most part about individual selection or individual fitness where some organism increases its genes in the next generation by sort of a direct mechanism, having a lot of kids, basically. Right, exactly. But there's also a benefit to uh, helping out people who you, or other organisms that you share genes with. So if your brother has a bunch of kids, that does provide some level of fitness benefit to you if your brother's kids all make it. Yeah, if your brother has this sort of some of the same genes you do, you can actually increase your genes in the next generation, not only through your own kids, but through the offspring of relative. Right, so the question is, does relatedness and kinship influence where birds who parasitize other same species nests lay their eggs? So this study is a little different, or this article, I guess, is a little different than most of the others that we do here. Usually we do sort of like we, we talk about a paper that is primary research where people do some sort of experiment or they collect some data and they analyze it. Yep. Uh, this is a review. And so the, the whole study is that they're collecting other studies that have already been published and sort of bringing all those together in the same place and trying to figure out, are there common themes or can we sort of find a pattern in all these other studies that have been published before that give us insight into the phenomenon we're interested in, which in this case is kinship selection in uh, brood parasitism within a species. Right, exactly. So the kinship selection focus might not have been the primary focus of each of these individual studies, but it was an element of what they studied. And then this article we're talking about today puts all those studies together and looks at kinship across all of them. So this one really focuses, I would say, largely on waterfowl. Yep. And part of the reason for that, so waterfowl, this is like geese and ducks, ducks um, mainly. 
And I would say part of the reason for that is that waterfowl seem to kind of have like a perfect storm of things that allow brood, in, within species brood parasitism that is actually sort of beneficial to both the host and the parasite. There's a yeah. kinship thing. And so maybe we should talk, I mean, one of the things they talk about in this article is that they're using the word parasitism. Right, but that might not actually be a very useful word here because it's not unlike helping out a family member, really. You know, parasitism implies that uh, one species is kind of instituting a drain on another species' resources. Not even just a species, but an individual. Oh, you sure. Know, if yeah, if yeah, you're yeah, within yeah. the an same individual. species, but you do something that, that is a cost to another member of the species, that's a parasitic type of behavior. Exactly, right. But what's what might actually be happen, happening here is fairly mutualistic. So, so really what they're studying is the behavior of birds laying eggs in nests that are not their own. Yeah. And they're sort of using parasitism as a catch-all phrase for that, of these birds laying eggs in a nest that's not their own. Right. But uh, it could be that that's not actually parasitic. If, if you laying an egg in a nest that's not your own doesn't cause a, a sort of a harm to the owner of that nest, then that's not parasitic at all, really. It's, it's either sort of neutral or if there's kinship selection operating, what they're suggesting here is that might even be beneficial for both you and the host, yep. the owner of that nest. Yeah. Yeah. And brood parasitism or, sorry, laying an egg in a nest that's not your own is kind of the female equivalent of like mating with a bunch of different individuals. Like if you're a male and you copulate with a bunch of different females to try to increase the number of kids that are yours. If you're a female, you might lay your own clutch and then also go lay a couple of eggs in, in other clutches just to increase the chances of your kids being out there. It seems that this within species breed parasitism, we'll call it, but within species egg laying in other nests yeah. is quite common. So they sort of, in the introduction, sort of list some of the other species this is known from. There's over 200 species where this is known to happen. And it's not just birds. There are also examples from insects, uh, fish frogs and toads. So this is this is not a super rare, like freakish kind of thing that happens out there. Right, exactly. It's pretty common. And, and that to me uh, sort of really highlights the benefits of a review like this, where you try to gather all the evidence from all these different cases and figure out if this is so common, if it's happening in hundreds of species, is there some sort of underlying pattern to when and why this happens? Yeah. So the species that they were looking at here were um, mostly a bunch of duck species, right? They looked at mandarin duck and common eider, wood duck, golden eye. Yeah, bar both barrows, golden eye, and common golden eye. So they had, yeah, I don't know, a couple of duck and, and a couple of goose species, I think barnacle goose maybe. Yeah. So what is it, Ellie, that, I mean, I was sort of saying there's a perfect storm of characteristics that make this sort of within species brood parasitism common or maybe even sort of beneficial uh, in waterfowl. What are the, some of those factors that make this so common in waterfowl? Well, a lot of wild, waterfowl uh, are, are born in a certain place, then they disperse, uh, leave and go elsewhere, and then they come back to that place where they were born to breed. And so you end up with uh, closely related individuals all in the same location during breeding season. 
Yeah, and specifically, it's the females that come back to the same place yes, they were born. Exactly. In, in many bird species, the males will come back and breed close to where they're born. Um, and here, it's in waterfowl, it's the females that yep. come back. Yeah, thanks for that clarification. Which means that there's at least the opportunity to lay an egg in a nest of a close relative. Um, you know, if, if all your sisters go far, far away to breed, and all your daughters go far, far away to breed, it would be very hard to lay an egg in the nest of someone who's a close relative because your relatives would be very far away. Yeah. So here, there's at least sort of the physical possibility of getting to a relative's nest. So that's part of the story. Exactly. Other, so other factors that um, might make this arise easily is, has to do with the, the cost to the host. If it's very costly for a host to accept a parasitic egg, then you're probably not going to see this arise as a kinship selection behavior, you know, where it's beneficial to both parties because it will just be too costly for the host. But right. with waterfowl, they're precocial. Yeah, which means that they leave the nest right away and can feed themselves. They don't, the parent doesn't um, spend a lot of energy collecting food and bringing it back to the nest yeah, for the, the babies. The chicks can function on their own basically as soon as they hatch. Yeah. I mean, the parents stay with them, but they're sort of guarding and protecting. They're not actually having to feed the birds. Yeah. This is very unlike a songbird, like a robin or something, where the adult has to collect food and bring it to the babies in the nest and feed them, which is very energy intensive. Yeah. So in this case, it might not cost you that much more as a parent to have an extra one or two chicks running around because you're not really doing anything except sort of standing guard anyway. <laughs> right, yeah, you're already providing some predator protection for a, a group of chicks. And so, you know, adding some additional individuals doesn't increase that cost very much. There's also the factor that uh, there seems to be some ability in these birds to recognize uh, close relatives. Yep. And so that's sort of something that makes it much easier for a relative benefiting behavior to develop is if you're able to recognize your relatives. If you don't have that ability, it's going to be hard to do. But many of these birds are known to associate in family groups. They seem to recognize and greet close relatives and things like that. So they, yep. they seem to have that ability. And there's already some examples in many of these species of brood merging. So regardless of who laid the eggs, once the young are out of the nest, they uh, a couple of families will all kind of be together. So, so you see that increase in kid numbers without the high cost, again, in that way. So beyond whether or not it's, it's costly to incorporate a, an additional kid into your brood, the other important factor here is that helping out your relatives might actually increase your own fitness, allow, uh, allow your genes or at least a portion of your genes to be passed on. Yeah, and so one of the things that this review focuses on is relatedness. They take measures of relatedness um, from these other studies and they try to figure out do more closely related birds more frequently lay eggs in each other's nests. I mean, that's really the heart of it. Is this, is this behavior of laying a an egg in another nest, is that something that happens more frequently between close relatives? Yeah. Because basically, if that is the case, if it happens more frequently between close relatives, it suggests that there is an actual kinship selection process going on, that this has evolved because of its sort of inclusive fitness benefits where both the parasite and the host are benefiting in terms of passing their genes on. Right. If it's not the case, that is if birds laying eggs in the nests of others don't tend to be closely related, then this suggests that it's maybe closer to a real parasitism 
It's an opportunistic thing that the individual parasite is doing. It increases their fitness because they have an extra baby running around the world. But it doesn't really help the host. Exactly. Yeah, so this study attempts to quantify relatedness in each of the seven studies that they looked at and then compare to try to see whether um, the relatedness is distinctly different from random for for each of these bird species. Yeah, and so much of this was done with genetic techniques. Uh, I think they had a few studies that also included some bird banding where they would like band chicks so they know that they were born in the same nest or something. Yeah. But mostly they're measuring the relatedness using these genetic things and they get a number and they sort of, basically this relatedness number is like zero if you're no more closely related than sort of any two random individuals in the population. So they might still be related, but just sort of at the background level that all the birds in the population are related. Mm -hmm. Birds more closely related than that have this positive number for relatedness and birds less closely related than random have a negative number. Yep. And so really at the heart of most of these things in this review, most of these studies are at some point taking a pair of birds, a host and a parasite, and they're measuring their relatedness in terms of this R number. And if that number is positive, it means those birds are more closely related than would be expected at random. Yep. Okay. So the, the null hypothesis here is important. Like, The null hypothesis isn't that parasites lay eggs in the nests of unrelated birds. Right, exactly. The null hypothesis is that they lay eggs in random nests. So they could be related, they could be not related. That is not what's dictating where they lay the nests, where they lay the eggs. And in fact, sometimes they will be related, but but just sort of as frequently as you'd expect randomly. Right, exactly. You can imagine that if if bird, if females go back to their breeding grounds to nest, you might accidentally lay your egg in the nest of a relative, not on purpose. And so p- picking apart whether that relatedness is random or not is the point of this study. Yeah. And it turns out that uh, it seems like mostly... It's not random <laughs> that yeah. there is a, a higher degree of relatedness in ne- the nests that you choose to lay an egg in. Yeah, I would say that's the, the biggest message from this review is that in multiple different species, in multiple different studies, there seems to be evidence that birds are laying eggs in the nests of close relatives more than in the nests of just sort of random birds. Right. And so... You know, that's kind of the power of a review, because for a lot of these individual studies, the sample size was relatively small, um, because you can imagine it's just difficult and costly to get genetic evidence from a bunch of individuals for for the purposes of an individual study. But when you look at all seven of these species all taken together, and all seven of these species have a non-random relatedness factor influencing where they lay, you know, parasite eggs... Um, that is a, a relatively definitive conclusion, I think. Yeah, so I'm going to flip through the article here. I don't know if any of you are able to look at the article online or if you're looking at this yourselves. So I'm looking at figure five here. So just to give you an idea of the, the sample sizes involved in the original studies, this is, it looks like, from a study about uh, Canada geese in Michigan. And they had 42 nests that they looked at, 26% of those nests had a parasitic egg in them. 
So that's something on the order of 10 nests that had a parasite egg. Yeah. I think it was 11. Uh, so, so not many nests to begin with. Yep. And then they have, in, in four of those 11 cases, they estimated that the host and the parasite were like very first order relatives, like, like a brother and sister or sister and sister or something like that. Or maybe it was mother daughter. No, it was mother daughter. Okay. So in four of 11 cases, it's a mother daughter. That sample size is very small. Yep. Uh, you know, 11 is not big in nope. any way. And so when you look at this histogram, like you look at figure five and, um, you know, I'm sort of looking at it, and I think, eh, if I took that study on its own, I would just not be convinced that this is not just random. Like, right, you, you that can, that's not just like an accident of you happen to look at 10 nests that are closely related, but who knows, you know. Yeah, because if you just sort of get one nest, you know, one pair that's closely related one way or the other, if you hadn't, if it had been three out of 11 instead of four or something, right? your whole conclusion might really change. I mean, just just from that element of randomness. So it's, it's very small sample sizes. I would sort of take that as sort of a weak like, if I saw that study on its own, I'd be like, huh, that's really interesting and suggestive, but I want to see some more before I'm really going to believe that right. for sure. Exactly. But when you take it with the six other studies that they look at here, and all of them show the same conclusion, however slight, that is more powerful evidence that that slight um, element is real yeah. and not an imaginary you know, figment of the small sample size here. Yeah, exactly. And and it's sort of, yeah, um, seven different species, all of them kind of smaller sample sizes, but all showing a very similar pattern. Yeah, and for what it's worth, you know, last, <laughs> last episode we were talking about how we found the result of the cuckoo egg situation compelling, even though we were looking at a sample size of what essentially boiled down to like four. <laughs> it was like three out of four yeah. <laughs> or something. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a review of, of cuckoo egg crypsis stuff would not be misplaced in uh, galvanizing that result. <laughs> so we've talked about how they're looking at this relatedness and, and they're using that to see whether both hosts and parasites could be benefiting, in which case kin selection might be happening. Yep. What they're really trying to measure here is this concept of inclusive fitness. Um, and so, so Ellie, can you explain sort of in a nutshell what the inclusive fitness is? Yeah, basically, inclusive fitness is, is like trying to measure your total fitness. Um, and fitness is, is the, the success in passing on your genes, basically. And inclusive fitness is measuring that fitness from not only your own reproductive success, how many kids you have, but also your relative's reproductive success. And the way your relative's reproductive success factors into your inclusive fitness depends on how closely related they are to you. So your, you know, your cousin is not going to, your cousin's kids don't provide as much inclusive fitness to you as your sister's kids. So basically, if you think about a bird that might have some number of chicks this year. Say it's going to have, it's going to lay four eggs and have four chicks. Um, from a traditional perspective, you'd think things that that bird can do that maximizes the number of ch chicks that it manages to successfully rear will give it increased fitness. So if it's better at defending the chicks from the nest so that they don't get eaten or whatever. 
So say say the baseline is like it's going to have four chicks. Yep. But now say that bird also has a sister. And that sister um, maybe was going to have no chicks because she couldn't find a nest site or something. Yeah. Well, what if this bird could have her sister lay a couple eggs in her own nest and... Um, you know, say the sister lays two eggs, and so there's two additional chicks here. The question really is, of course, some of the, the original bird's genes are in those sister's eggs, and so it would pass on some genes through its sister's children. Yep. The question is, if there's a cost to accepting the sister's eggs... Right, if one of your eggs fails because you've accepted your sister's eggs. Right, if, if that bird only manages to hatch three instead of four chicks, how many eggs of its sisters would it have to successfully hatch in order to make that sort of break even or even be a benefit. Right. So the idea is that if there's something that is, if there's some characteristic of behavior that has a genetic basis, you know, that's hereditable, and if it provides a fitness benefit, not necessarily individually, but through this inclusive fitness, that is bigger than the individual benefit, then that trait would sort of expand through the population. Right. So if by accepting a sister's eggs into a nest, a host can reliably increase its own genes in the next generation, then that behavior of ex letting sisters lay eggs in your nest would expand throughout the population and be fairly common. Yep. And in many of these studies that they looked at, the number of parasitized nests is high. So we just looked at that Canada goose one. It's a quarter of the nests they looked at were parasitized. Some of these are over 50%, like there's some eider colonies, these are sea ducks, yep. where over 50% of the nests had a parasitic egg, at least one parasitic egg in them. Yep. So this is quite common in some of these populations. Yeah, and they even mentioned, actually, for the eiders, it's, uh, they, ha they had a couple instances in the study of, of an older female who couldn't lay eggs anymore, raising her relatives brood. Yeah, I found this very interesting. There, yeah. were, there were two ducks, two cases, where they had an old female eider. I can't remember. They might have said like over 15 years old. Or yeah. I could be misremembering that. Anyway, it couldn't lay its own eggs anymore, and but it was incubating a nest. And every single egg in that nest was did not belong to it, but was from a relative. Yep. And so here we have, you know, a very clear case of that bird sort of increasing its fitness in terms of the number of its genes that go on to future generations. Yeah. By um, sort of doing this brood parasitism thing. It's, it's taking care of eggs that are not its own. Yeah. And there are actually multiple ways that it increased fitness. So number one, it's raising those eggs, and those are going to be little chicks. But the other thing about those eiders that's interesting is that there's very high mortality for the females when they're incubating eggs. They're yeah. sitting on a nest, and predators can come along and, and kill them easily. And so it's also possible that that old female is not only increasing her fitness through those eggs that are in the nest, but maybe it means that a daughter of hers doesn't have to incubate a nest that year. Right. And so the daughter is more likely to survive till the next year and lay even more eggs. Yep. Yeah, it's like multi-generation impact, potentially. Mm -hmm. So, Wilson, uh, one thing I always think about when we read a study like this is, why are we so obsessed with fitness as a a driver for behavior? Well, I mean, I think the first thing you have to understand is that fitness, when it's used in these contexts, is a, a more special, we're using a more specialized definition than you might use in common uh, everyday language. Sure. 
when we're talking about fitness here, we're talking all we're talking about is um, the number of your genes that get passed on to future generations. Right. That's it. So, so there's no other criteria for what is high fitness and what's low. Something that increases the number of genes in the next generation is has high fitness. Something that does not is neutral, and something that decreases that is sort of negative. Yeah. So this is different than how you might talk about fitness in many other like. I don't know if you're talking, if you're trying to, to measure the costs and benefits of something in other contexts, you might be concerned about quality of life or longevity or who knows, any number of other things. But those are not what we're talking about in these cases when we're talking about evolution. Fitness just means the number of genes that end up in the next generation right. of yours. So that's part of it. The second bit is that this is the entire mechanism behind natural selection. Right. This is the the kind of end-all, be-all of how you move forward in the world, getting better with each generation. Yeah, it's not even, I don't even know about forward or better, but it is the mechanism by which change happens. Sure. Okay. Um, That's I probably mean, I, a better way to put it. I guess by definition, it's better in terms of fitness and genetic fitness. Yes. You know, but some, I think what people sometimes get confused about is that it doesn't guarantee some sort of, like wherever the finish line is, it doesn't mean you're going to be winning at the finish line. Right. <laughs> there are plenty if of, there is a finish line. If, right, yeah. if there's a finish line. There are plenty of cases where you might, a, a trait that increases fitness might spread in a population, conditions change, and that trait is no longer beneficial. Sure. Then and, it's maladaptive somehow or whatever. And yeah. then the species goes extinct. Yeah. So, you know, there's not really a finish line. Mm. What we're talking about is the process by which characteristics that are genetically based and that you can inherit spread through a population. Mm -hmm. and, and the genes that determine those characteristics spread through the population. That's what we mean by fitness. The reason studies like this are so focused on it is because that is the entire mechanism of evolution in terms of how these characteristics become you know, common or not in a population. Yeah. And so this, the question behind this study is really this brood parasitism, which we know happens fairly frequently. Hundreds of species over half the nests in some species. This is a common characteristic. Did it become common only because of the benefits to the parasites, like to that individual bird? And, and is the benefit to that individual bird so big that it can sort of um, become very common in this population? Or is there a benefit to both the parasite and the host, yeah. in which case the mechanism that sort of supports that trait and, and expands it through the population is a little different. Yeah, right. So it seems like with waterfowl, there's a benefit to both the parasite and the host. And so that's going to spread. That's why you see so many waterfowl species that use this kind of strategy. Yeah. And the key is really that, that they more frequently parasitize nests of close relatives. The other big key is that the cost of getting one or two new eggs is low for the host. Right, because of this precocial nature of their kiddos. Yeah, the babies are feeding themselves. Now, there is, it, it, it is clear that once the clutch gets too big, then you start having severe costs. Yep. So I think once you get bigger than eight or nine eggs in some of these eider studies they're looking at, the hatching probability goes down and things start getting bad again. But, yeah. for, but for most cases, there's not a big cost to the host of taking a new egg. If that new egg belongs to a relative, then they gain some 
inclusive fitness benefit. Yeah. And this is different from the obligate parasites that we were talking about last episode who um, who lay their eggs in a, a different species nest and um, there is a high cost to raising that young and uh, and therefore it's kind of a, a the arms race that we discussed last time with uh, defenses and kind of sneak tactics. Um, that's not what's happening here. No, in this, in this waterfowl study at all. Yeah, this review really suggests that, that it's more of a cooperation between relatives, not an arms race to try to trick each other. Right. There's a, there is an element. So it seems that many of these birds are able to recognize close relatives and they are aggressive when an unrelated bird comes near their nest, but they're not aggressive when a relative comes near. And that lets the relatives get in and lay eggs easier. Yep. So there is a little bit of an arms race between maybe between birds who are not related. Um, sure. But there's n it's not a competition between the closely related birds. There seems to be benefits to both, and there are various mechanisms by which they might even facilitate that. If they're able to recognize each other, then they can uh, sort of allow relatives in to lay eggs and this sort of thing. Exactly. So we call it parasitism because we refer to breed parasitism as anybody who lays their egg in the nest of another bird. But... Um, it's, this more closely resembles kind of a cooperative breeding strategy. Yeah, it's it's more like some sort of a social uh, structure in these birds. And so one of the species they look at quite a bit in this review is eiders. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a bunch of other interesting social behavior with eiders. It seems that they have studies showing that groups of closely related eiders arrive on the breeding grounds together after migration. So they're traveling as a bit of a family group during the migration. Yep. Um, they nest closer together. So, so as you, so from a given nest, they can sort of measure, take a line going out some distance and measure how closely related the birds are as you get farther and farther away from that nest. And it turns out the farther you are from a nest, the less closely related the birds. So they're grouping together a little bit and they seem to be uh, laying eggs in each other's nests when they're closely related. So there's all sorts of um, potentially complex social structures where these birds are recognizing their relatives in all kinds of different situations, migration, wintering grounds, nest building, yep. parasiting. And that kind of suggests a complex social structure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which makes, you, makes me wonder what other social dynamics might influence where you lay those extra eggs if you uh, are choosing relatives that are close to you as the only important factor, or if maybe you recognize something about a relative's parenting skills that you might be uh, interested in capitalizing on or, or you know, something along those lines. Yeah, that's interesting. They talk in here about a study with golden eyes, common golden eyes, I think, which are, they nest in cavities. So cavities in trees or like a nest box or something. And it seems that at the end of a breeding season, golden eyes will go around to different nests that are not their own and sort of go in and take a look. <laughs> like and how well did my relative do this season? Yeah, yeah. it seems they might be, and, and they take a look and then the next season they tend to nest in places that were successful nests in the previous season. Yep. So it seems they might be going around at the end of breeding season, evaluating whether this was a good nest, yeah. which might mean that it's sort of hard for predators to find or things like that. Sure. And if it's a good nest, they're like, I'm going to remember that and come back here next year. Yeah, scoping out the good spots. And it did seem, I think they suggested in here that that study found that 
Sometimes these groups of golden eyes going around investigating nests are groups of sisters or other closely related birds. Yeah. So there, you're right, there may well be some degree of not only choosing relatives, but trying to choose relatives who have been very good at raising yeah, birds Yeah, who in the do past, a good or, job choosing the right spot and chasing away predators or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it seems there's a whole lot of potentially complex stuff here that is only beginning to be studied or understood. Partly that's because it takes a, a huge amount of oh, effort yeah. to study these things. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine? I mean, it's it would be... In, in terms of hours of observation and tracking individuals, um, a, a huge task to try to pick apart some of these societal dynamics here. And I think that might be partly why this review is sort of coming out at this time. I mean, they sort of mentioned that the ability to get genetic evidence quickly, fairly cheaply, has really revolutionized this the study of this type of thing. Definitely. Because... More than 20 or 30 years ago, if you wanted to study this, it was all observation-based. You would have to band the birds and then track them with binoculars and try to see when they're visiting other nests. Maybe you could set up video cameras and try to get it, but, but it was right. all observation-based. Right, and for the relatedness based. stuff, you would have to like band them basically when they hatched and then track them over the course of their lifetime in order to you know, draw those conclusions about how related they were. Yeah. The last 10 or 20 years, they've been able to start doing studies where they use the genetic evidence to figure out how closely related birds are. And in particular, they have one method where they can take an egg and draw a little bit of fluid out from that egg with a needle. And then they sort of patch the little tiny hole with super glue, basically, mm -hmm. not super complex. Yeah. And the egg can go on and hatch totally fine, totally normally. So that you don't even have to kill a baby bird to get the evidence. You just take this little sample out of the egg, then you put the egg back in the nest, it's gonna be fine. Yep. And so you can get this evidence for many, many more birds. And so it seems like the authors of this review have actually been some of the people doing many of these studies. Yep. And they've now got enough of these studies done using this genetic evidence that finally, kind of almost for the first time, you can really do a review where you you have many different species to look at, many different studies for some of these species. Yeah, which is really cool. It kind of opens up a whole new world of, of being able to look at, at these social structures for for these species. Yeah, and one of the things, you know, this is mostly about waterfowl. They do mention that there are some um, quail and partridges in the New World, so North America, that may have similar things going on. Uh, similar brood parasitism within the species and brood merging, which is where different nests of birds after the babies hatch, they'll all sort of join in one big group. Yep. And they say, you know, this would be something to really study more. And I made me think about turkeys, wild turkeys in North America, because the turkeys definitely have brood merging. It's so like in the spring, right? you'll see groups of turkeys running around, and there'll be, I don't know, 20 or 30 little baby turkeys. Right, there's like, yeah. I've definitely seen groups of 15 to 20 little turkeys, for yeah. sure. Which has got to be more than one family. And a couple and, hens. Yeah, a couple adults yeah. there. So they're doing the brood merging afterwards. I also recall having seen a very few studies that did find turkeys laying parasitic eggs, like a turkey would come along and lay an egg in the nest of another turkey. Yep. And I sort of wonder, is that possibly not parasitism, but actually this this sort of kinship-based uh, laying an egg in the nest of a relative? That, that certainly seems possible. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I have a feeling that you might start finding this in many, many species that we haven't studied yet. Right. It seems like something worth investigating for all species with precocial young, basically. If your young can feed themselves, um, 
as soon, pretty much as soon as they hatch. It's, uh... Yeah, I think you could look at the sort of key factors that made up the perfect storm, basically, for waterfowl, and you could prioritize studying those species. So precocial young is one, because it means the cost of the host is kind of low. Yep. Females returning to breed where they were born yep. seems like it would help a lot also, because it just means there's going to be more other relatives around. Um, and if there's any evidence already that the bird can recognize close relatives, that would help. Though I would almost say that for many birds, even if there's not evidence, I would guess that maybe most birds are able to do that. If I, It's been found for so many birds, I feel like at this point, I would not be surprised if you came along and told me any species was able to, to recognize a relative. So maybe I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised either. And I probably would be surprised if you found strong evidence that they couldn't recognize relatives. Yeah, I'd have to think about that a little more. But I guess I I wouldn't make that a priority for me studying a species. If I was going to go out and look for a species to sure. study here, I wouldn't be worried about that. But I would be looking for precocial species, yep. places where the females come back to the same spot. Yep. So in terms of what we take from this study, I, I think the the most important things to me are that waterfowl lay eggs in <clears throat> nests of close relatives and that that behavior probably has some benefits both for the egg layer and for the host. And that even when the sample size of individual studies is relatively small, when you put them all together and they all show the same kind of signal, that's pretty compelling evidence that uh, the signal is, is real here. So once again, the article is Brood Parasitism, Relatedness, and Sociality, A Kinship Role in Female Reproductive Tactics. It was published in Biological Reviews in 2019. Uh, we'll put the link on our website, fledglingtheories.podbean.com, so you can uh, hopefully go to that article and look at the graphs yourselves and see what they had to say. Thanks for listening. The funding for my PhD position comes from a project funded by Science Foundation Ireland, I'm at University College Dublin in the Ecological Modeling Group of John Yearsley. If you want to find out more about our research in the Ecological Modeling Group, you can go to www.ucd.ie/ecomodel.